Welcome to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Kim is a psychotherapist and executive director of ICU Talks, a mental health speaking ministry. This is a podcast about how to flip your lid and learning how to reconnect to who you really are. Thank you all for tuning in again to Flip Your Lid. I have a a friend, a brother in Christ with me today. Let me tell you a little bit about the Josh Bone. He was born and raised in Dallas, North Carolina. That's not Dallas, Texas. That's a little itty-bitty, adorable town near Gastonia. We won't talk about that at all. He attended college at UNC Chapel Hill, go Tar Heels, where he began to struggle with alcoholism. After years of active addiction, he will be celebrating four years of sobriety in the month of March. Josh currently resides in Charlotte, North Carolina with his wife, whose name is Jennifer, and their two children. Josh works as a therapist with Charlotte, with Carolina Center for Recovery, located in the Charlotte area. In 2019, he created Anchor of Hope Sober Living through a GoFundMe account. The nonprofit Anchor of Hope Sober Living now consists of seven sober living homes across the Charlotte and Matthews area, serving over 45 residents. Mr. Bone and his family are part of the Pritchard at South End Church community as he and his wife serve on a weekly basis. Sharing a God's amazing grace and helping others has become a passion in his life, illustrated by his willingness to walk by faith. So y'all join me in welcoming the amazing Josh Bone to Flip Your Lit. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, Very glad humbling. to see you here, Josh. I'm really, really glad you took time to do this. Me too. Yeah, so here's the thing. So you and I are hanging out on March 12th, my birthday, but this will be aired on 420. We're doing that on purpose since 420 is a day that gets glamorized in active addiction or for people who are in that world, in the drug world, right? And so we want to bring a, a sobering, a real message of how, how that date of 420 can really change and how your entire life can change. And so I want to start right there with you, Josh. That's our, our first question, only predetermined question we have here. I just want to ask you, can you tell us a little bit about what life event, what life experience flipped your lid and what measures have you had to take to reconnect to who God says you really are? All right. <clears throat> so, um, you know, I've given this this question some consideration after listening to uh, some previous podcasts and um I, it's funny that you mentioned that today is uh, is March 12th, and um, I feel it appropriate to share. Uh, today is actually the the seven year anniversary of the passing of my mother. Mm, um, wow, well, Josh. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And I I spent some time, you know, considering what event really transpired that was that flipped my lid. And, um, you know, this, this day, seven years ago, um, I was definitely in active addiction and, um, for an alcoholic that was already drinking on a daily basis. Um, it, it was definitely an event that gave me an, a reason or an excuse to drink more. Um, and it catapulted and, and fueled my addiction by my own choice. Um, you know, suddenly for someone that was, you know, I used drinking for, for everything. Um, I had a, a reason and, uh, almost a, a passion behind that drinking. And, um, oddly enough, the, the more alcohol I've uh, poured on the pain, the, uh, the greater the pain got, mm-hmm. and, uh, it just stopped working. Mm-hmm. 
um, you know, that, uh, that event would lead me to some legal repercussions. Um, it would lead me into an experience in sober living down in Wilmington, North Carolina. Um, and it would lead me to an, an education uh, around addiction that I did not have. And, um, you know, at the time, uh, you know, we always, or I always questioned why things had to happen and, and what was, the, what was the purpose? Um, at that point in my life, I was, I was very angry with God and, and angry with God for, for a long time. Um, I used guys that God as a, a scapegoat rather, rather than, um, looking to him for peace or, or for salvation. And, um, that, you know, that day seven years ago was an absolute turning point in my life that it went from, you know, drinking with some problems to, to my drinking was literally just a problem. Um, mm. uh, every, everything I did revolved around it. And the more I drank, the more, the worse things got. So, mm. so yeah. So thank you for that, Josh. So what, what do you think the difference is? Because, you know, you and I can, through our own personal experiences, both in recovery, you know, like there's, the, it's only a bottom because you somehow decide it's a bottom. Right, because right. there, like, there's just different levels. People have experienced the exact same thing you and I have, and they're still out there doing the deal, or they've passed because of this horrible disease. And so, so what was it for you? What's the shift? What turned the light on that all of a sudden that you stepped into a whole new life and and had the the willingness to step into a whole new life? Well, like I shared, that was uh, in 2014, and. And life continued to just spiral down. I would have stints of sobriety from, you know, here to there, 30, 60, 90 days and in and out of 12-step recovery and, and just, uh, you know, trying to get this thing. But my whole thing was I was never willing to to allow God into my life. Um, and um, that shift happened. Um, you know, this was actually the answer I'd been contemplating about um, flipping, flipping my lid. Um mm. You know, I woke up in a jail cell in January of 2017 and um, with no recollection of what the charges mm-hmm. I was facing were. I was um, I was on suicide watch. Um, I had one sock on um, and that uh, that emotional and, and physical bottom that um, that I that I would hit. It wasn't my first time in jail, but it was definitely the first time under under this pretense with um, coming from a blackout and just, uh, you know, life had hit an all new low. Um, and, and it, it wasn't the physical pain. It was, uh, the emotional awareness that I was never going to reach the potential that I knew was possible for, for me and for my life if I didn't make some changes. Um, Mm. and you know, I spent about 70 days in jail. Um, I got out and, and I still wasn't ready to make those changes, that physical pain, that, that time, um, that wasn't what done it. I, I, this term, you know, reaching a bottom was something that's, you know, for a long time, I, I kind of understood that you hear it in, in recovery, uh, literature, that, that terminology and everything. But, um, I, I see a bottom is when you stop digging. Um, there's no, there's no like requirement that you have to lose everything or that you have to go to jail or that you, have to be in and out of recovery. It's, it's when I decide to do something different, I put down the shovel and I, right. I started doing something different. Um, for me, the, the emotional pain and, and the struggle of, you know, here I am, uh, someone who is college educated, 
I have a lot of tenacity and, and I have a lot of strengths in my life and here I am using them to kill myself. Right. And I, I reached a level where I was at the point where either my addiction was going to kill me or I was going to spend the rest of my life in jail due to some choices that I would make. Or I could, uh, I could get into recovery. I could, um, you know, do some things that had been suggested to me for a long, long time. And one of them was starting a relationship with God on my end. And um, so I, I reached out for help in uh, late April of 2017. And um, I, I landed in a position that I just had to be willing to to do what was suggested, um, willing to get honest about the role that I played in my own life. I, I had to be willing to to work with another man. And and also I had to definitely be willing to, uh, to talk to God about things. And uh, most importantly, I had to I had to let him help me. He had been helping me and guiding me all throughout my life. And it's evident through the fact that, that I was still alive through many of the decisions that I made. I know that there's, there's purpose in the pain that I went through today. And, um, but when I, when we disclose ourselves to God, he, or when we open ourselves to God, he discloses himself to us. And, and that's what I had to do. I had to get out of the way and let down that barrier and, and start talking to God instead of talking about God. I had to talk to, to God and allow him uh, to work in and through my life. And, um, you know, that was, that was a process. Um, it wasn't something that, that happened overnight. That change was, was a process that I had to let God infiltrate my life and actually, um, I had to come to an understanding of all the things that I had been through, losing my mother, losing my grandfather, um, the legal repercussions, you know, wandering around the streets, all, all the, the detox facilities um, and, and just decisions that I had made. If I was willing to allow them to be purposeful in my life, then I knew that God would use those. And he, he absolutely has. Yeah, you said so many powerful things. You know, within those statements, like one, just just the statement you threw out there about, you know, the bottom is when we put the shovel down and, mm-hmm. you know, we get so controlled by shame and blame and, and the power of rejection that that we, we don't think we're worthy of putting that that shovel down, you know. And so just the idea of that, of you having some willingness to know for for just a second that there was something more to life and to. You know, because really, that's the crazy thing about self-destruction, that there's no self if we're destructing. So how do we ever have enough sense of self to stop destructing? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, The paradox in there is just just tremendous. And it's just what a miracle that you did that. You know, it's interesting. I I get to work with individuals uh, new in recovery. And and we um, literally today, I was leading a group talking about resentments. And I had... um, I'd spent so much time trying to trying to get into recovery that I I kind of let go of a lot of the um, resentments I had towards other people, but uh, but I hated myself so much. Yeah. I, I, I lied and cheated and 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 told myself that I wasn't valuable. And if I told myself these things, that's how I treated them, treated mm-hmm. myself. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the questions I, I pose um, to to people in early recovery is you know, would you ever treat anyone else the way that you've treated yourself? Right. And, and that answer is no, I would, I would never treat 
another, even an act of addiction, I would have never treated another person the way that I treated myself. I, I hated myself and I punished myself through my actions over and over again for mm-hmm. a long time. Yeah, you know, and, you know, PTSD is the only anxiety disorder directly correlated to alcoholism, to drug addiction, and, and to a simple definition of trauma is disconnection. And we know mm-hmm. that addiction is also called disconnection and that we're taught that connection, the we of the program, is the answer. And there's great truth in that. Do you have a, a sense in all the work you've done of what your initial traumatic disconnection was that separated you so much from self that you treated yourself that way? You know, it's interesting. I've, I've read and listened to um, a lot of information on the studies of trauma. And early on, I, I just qualified myself from trauma being relative to my personal recovery. Um, throughout time, I've learned to understand that that the level of the trauma is sensitive to the sensitivity of the person, right. not the degree of the trauma. Yeah. Um and that has made a, an infinite amount of sense to me. Um, you know, obviously you hear horror stories of physical abuse and sexual abuse and, um, you know, that being the root behind a lot of, a lot of addiction. And, and that definitely was not the case for me. Um, I was raised by my grandparents, um, uh, from the time I was four months old until I went to college at 18 years old. They, they were my parents, um, uh, my, my parents were young when, when I was born, they were never married. And, you know, the best decision they could have made was to allow my grandparents to raise me. Um, they were present in my life, um, in short periods. I know that both my mom and my father loved me and that they cared for me. It was just, a uh, initially a season in their life where they were not ready to be parents. And, you know, I don't, I don't fault them for that, but I, I can't say that that wasn't true, you know, years ago um right. years ago I, I just felt different um you know growing growing up i i was raised again like i said by my grandparents and like everybody's parents were younger and it was it was just different um mm. and i don't necessarily equate my my drinking to that but um my grandparents raised me um kind of old ideology and that you know if it's if it's bad you just don't touch it um, rather than an educational piece behind that. Um, I was, I was told, you know, alcohol is bad and you just don't drink. And, um, and knowing my family history a little bit now, I have an understanding of, of why that was, that was said, but, um, being curious and, and just being, uh, you know, I would say that there, there's something there. I was, that disconnection of, of not understanding, I wanted to know. Um, I like to know about everything. And um, when I was told that you basically you just don't drink, that basically tells me that I need to find out why. Um, yeah, yeah. So I did. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it, but I guess the, uh, the the trauma piece there could could simply be that my childhood looked a little bit different. Um, there was never ever any anything negative about it. Um, it was just because I was raised a little bit differently, I felt a little different and I did have to, I I felt like I needed to stand out. I had a a drive to, to succeed. I had a drive to succeed at an early age from, from elementary school all the way through, um, you know, through high school. Um, and when alcohol was introduced, I, I was kind of a late bloomer. I didn't really start drinking in high school. I started drinking in college. Um, when alcohol was introduced that, that kind of crushed that, um, 
perfectionism that I had. It kind of crushed that drive that I had to to excel because excelling kind of was my thing. I kind of got, you know, uh, almost a high from from being the best or striving to be the best at things. And when alcohol started to take that place, I found that I could I could achieve that fitting in or excelling or or that that buzz or whatever you want to call it a little bit easier. Uh, I could I could drink and I could control it. And as you know, alcoholics like to be in control. So yeah, well, that's really well said because you know perfectionism and rebellion are the same thing. Perfectionism is a form of rebellion. It's just rebellion looks like alcoholism, drug addiction. Perfectionism is something that gets praised. And we mm. tell the person to, to in high school to be on every club, every sport. We encourage them to make straight A's. We do all these things, which is actually encouraging a dependence on how someone else views you. And so it's the same thing. Like When someone's driving as hard as you did, it's just that how you feel is still on the outside. You're still waiting for something outside to tell you that you're okay on the inside. No different than what you did later through rebellion, through alcoholism. Right. You know? Yeah, but the struggle with the idea of not being wanted by your own parents or feeling different or anything like that. Like whether you call that, we call them little T's and big T's. As you know, little traumas, big traumas, the word trauma is still in there. And when we're separate from self, we don't do well. Mm, yeah. Um, <clears throat> it's interesting that, you know, just this conversation is taking this turn. I, I share when I, when I tell my story a lot is uh, like you, you said, I'm, I'm from a, a small town, about 3,500 people. Yeah. And, you know, I knew everyone and you ride around, you wave your hand out the window yeah. and everybody knows everybody. And I ended up in, in Chapel Hill with a freshman class larger than my, my hometown. And, and I, that connection was gone. And, right. and I, I missed that so much that I had to find a way to fit in. I had to find that sufficient substitute. And for a while it was, it was alcohol because alcohol mm-hmm. allowed me to connect whoever was around me as, you know, as inhibitions lowered as, mm-hmm. you know, the, <clears throat> just um I, I didn't feel shy anymore i could talk to anybody and i felt acceptance whether it was real or artificial i i can't really know but right. but i know that it, that's that's what happened so yeah we mm-hmm. drink for the effect produced <laughs> right absolutely so while you're at, at chapel hill like did from the get-go with your drinking was there a sense that something was wrong was it pretty immediate that people started getting concerned or was that a build-up for you um, well, I was very much a chameleon. Um, I had constructed my life in a, in a manner that to the outside, it, it looked pretty good to, to everyone. My, uh, my family was not very present. Um, Chapel Hill and Dallas are about two and a half hours away and, and they didn't travel a whole lot. So I kind of painted the picture of what, uh, what I wanted my life to look like. I, um, I was working, I was bartending at the time. That's a great job for an alcoholic. Very much. Um, you, you make connection, you meet people and, and drinking is kind of just a part of it. Right. Um, but I painted this picture of, of my life looking really good and really successful. Um, you know, I, I, I was making money. I, I didn't, you know, I didn't send them my transcript or anything that had my grades on it, but, um, but life appeared to be good. And, and I was really good at, at, uh, making that look like that. Right. Um, and they just they just didn't know the reality. They had no idea. I don't even necessarily even know that they knew I actually did drink. Um, I was I was very good at leaving leading that double life. Um, and uh, I painted this picture of who I 
I, I thought they wanted me to be rather than letting them into who I was actually becoming and, and the actions that I was taking, you know, behind closed doors. Right. Um, and I thought I was good at it for a while. And, and I've, I've come to realize that the only way I was good at it was from people that were, were distant from me. Those that were close to me mm. were keenly aware of my alcoholism and the progression of it long before I was. Right. That's normally the case, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. What what were the first signs, just for our listeners who you know are concerned about themselves or other people? And I know it looks different, but there are some certain markers and things that make us symptomatic. You know, for for me, I could tell the progression in my alcoholism and the fact that I scheduled my life around it. Um, hmm. Not so much that everyone knew that, but I only went to bars that that served my favorite beer, and rather than drinking for, you know, the social contact, I just wanted, I just wanted the alcohol. Um, you know, I was, I was always drinking before the party. I was usually the last one, last one up. Um, I didn't have to have a reason, but if we had a reason, then things were really going to be good. If it was a birthday party or if there was an event or a basketball game or, or whatever it might be, then then I had an excuse to uh, to drink a little more without well, what I, I thought without being judged. Um, hiding your drinking, um, mm-hmm. I, I I never admitted to this, but I you know I hid my drinking. I hid the amount that I would drink anytime I would go to get somebody else a, a drink. I I had one before I brought our drinks back, right. and. Those are the things that I knew, I knew that wasn't normal, but it was normal for me and Mm -hmm. I justified it. And just with the silliness of my, you know, well, I have a high tolerance or, you know, whatever, whatever lie I needed to tell myself so that my addiction was being fueled rather than the sanity of, of, you know, a, a rational decision or noticing that other, other people didn't have to have however many before we got to the bar. Um, but uh, I would definitely say the hiding and, and the lying and the rationalizing were huge indicators that um, my addiction and my alcoholism were definitely winning and growing. Yeah, no, I appreciate you saying that because you know, if, I, if I go on a college campus between Thursday and Sunday, majority of people, probably not majority, but there's a percentage of people that are going to look alcoholic. And it doesn't mean they they meet criteria for it, but there is such a party scene that I think yeah. it's important for us to kind of denote what what someone should be looking for and how to kind of check in with yourself if it's gone beyond just having fun in college and having some freedom to all of a sudden it's a dependence in your mm-hmm. emotional life <clears throat> and your ability to show up for something has now become about what type of beer is there, if there's beer there, how much you can drink, if you can smoke something while you're there. Like it's an indication that it's beyond just having a little bit of fun in college, right? And that that physical dependence starts to rear its head. You know, if 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 people are drinking first thing in the morning, um, if you keep alcohol where it's accessible twenty four seven, or it has to be, you know, wherever you're going. Um, Crossing that line of, of drinking first thing in the morning was a huge, huge indicator for me. And it was something I 
for a while I prided myself on is, oh, well, I don't drink in the morning, so obviously I'm fine. And, right. And then I was drinking in the morning, and it right. was justification of that. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I work late, so drinking in the morning is not really drinking in the morning. Yeah. Just, again, yeah. the lies and whatever I had to say. Oh, yeah. Whenever you ask an alcoholic about drinking in the morning, you have to ask them what time they wake up. Because that's, <laughs> right? Yeah. So we'll, exactly. we'll wake up at one o'clock in the afternoon and then say, I don't drink in the morning. All right. So, yeah. So, yeah. Most people don't have to question if they drink in the morning or not. That That's an indication in, in and of itself that right. something has gone gone to a different direction. You know, so for so many of us, that's true for me, where my drinking started and where, I, where it took me ended up, I would have never guessed. Just like recovery. Like I would never guess recovery was this good. I never guess alcohol is going to take me down the road it took me down. Yeah, I I agree completely. Um, I uh, I bartended for quite some time and um, in the Chapel Hill and Durham area, and you know I I had this job at an early age, and at that time financially it it seemed like I was superior to to my peers. I was you know making good money and 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 life was good, and I did whatever I wanted. Fast forward six to seven years and. And I'm I'm still doing the same thing. There's no advancement. Hmm. Um, and for for a perfectionist alcoholic that strives on titles and on being in control and on advancement and superiority and and I had all these complexes that that were you know rampant in my addiction. And here I am doing the same job, the monotony of it, and there was just no satisfaction. Um, so the satisfaction only comes from drinking. So again, mm-hmm. my drinking increases and eventually you meet physical limitations to where you can't drink enough to, or I couldn't drink enough to produce the effect that I needed and still function. Um, so I began to, to lose jobs and I began to, to be sick and I started, um, just to, to start to face repercussions for, for my drinking, it, it, that, that the fun period had ended. And now there was consequences for the way that I was drinking. And I was not very happy about that at all. Yeah. You know, even before the consequences increased for you, you sound, there's a, there's a sense that there was already a, already a loneliness. Oh, yeah. That was there. And, and that alcohol cover that for a little while and now it's exposing the loneliness near the end. Is that, is that for you part of your personal hitting bottom? Absolutely. Um, you know, there was always the next thing, you know, when I, when I get this house or when I get this vehicle or when I'm in this position or once, you know, this relationship, um, and, all of those things, whether they were materialistic or superficial, were were fake. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, relationships that had no depth and, and, and no weight to them. They were based um, on, they were based around drinking, based around feelings that I, I didn't have when I was sober because I was never sober. Yeah, um, right. yeah, <laughs> and and here I am trying to, to pour Jack Daniels in a hole in my soul. And this hole just is full of, full of holes and it's all just pouring out and I, I can't fill it up fast enough to, yeah. to fill any 
gratification or any any release or or anything. And and I I'm, I remember sitting you know in a house in Chapel Hill and I've got you know what whatever the the truck or or whatever it was that I that I wanted, and I got it that day or the day before, and still feeling empty and still just just not enough. And I I often wondered what what do I need? Why, why is it that I get this, this thing and fill in the blank, whatever it might be. And, and no matter what it is, when I get whatever that, that thing or, or that situation, whenever that happens, I still feel empty. And, Mm -hmm. you know, today I can, I can look back and, and know that that emptiness comes from my, my independence and self, uh, me trying to fix self with self, kind of like you mentioned, and it came from a, a lack of a, of a reliance on a higher power. It came from a lack of a reliance on God and his grace and his mercy. It came from a lack of, or my inability to see God working in my life and trying to protect me. And I, I just thought I was, you know, I thought I was the master of my own destiny. And I thought that if I could just fill in the blank, if I could get this this next level or whatever it might be that, and maybe that that would fix it and that maybe I would actually find some peace and some serenity and some happiness. And, um, every time that I got whatever that fill in the blank was, I, I was still empty inside yeah. and I was angry and frustrated. And, and so I did what an alcoholic does. I drank about it. Yep. And then we drink more. Yep. That's exactly what we do. What's tell me a little bit about the turning point. Cause we know, I know you got sober four years ago this month of April and, and it goes from that to working in this field. Can you talk about like, how do you get from being the person that people probably didn't think would ever get sober mm-hmm. to now being a catalyst for change? Right. Well, um, as I shared, I, I ended up in, in jail in, in January and I got out and, um, I, um, I had no tools to, to guard my sobriety. So, so I drank for a couple more weeks. Um, I reached out for help at the end of April in 2017 and an old friend from college who I actually used to bartend with, she, uh, she came and picked me up, um, from Dallas and took me to a a few hospitals here in the Charlotte area. Um, my, uh, health was pretty severe. So I ended up in a medical detox, um, in the Charlotte area. And, um, once I got out, I ended up crashing on her couch. I, I tried to get into several programs here in the Charlotte area. I didn't, I didn't have a job. I didn't have insurance. I didn't have money. Um, you know, everything I owned fit in a small SUV. And, um, so I just, uh, I did what I'd, I'd been told to do. I, you know, I started to attend 12 step meetings and, uh, I, I worked through that program and, and still continue to work through that program. Um, and slowly all, all the questions that I had, that, that hole in my soul, that connection with God, um, it gave me an avenue to pursue and to, uh, to fill that hole in my soul. It gave me an avenue to, to, um, extinguish all these, these emotions and to await an outlet to, to feel anger and to not replace it with alcohol and to replace it with God and, and with prayer and, and simply with just doing the next right thing. Um, my self-esteem was so low. So I, you know, I just did esteemable things, um, practicing kindness, learning the the definition of surrender and, and, and learning about this, this freedom that comes 
through working a program of recovery. And I say working a program of recovery because I, I initially, when I was trying to get sober, I, I thought that if I stopped drinking, then my life will get better. And I tried that several times, but I had to have a substitute. I had to have God working in and through my life. And for me to establish that relationship, I had to do some work. Yeah. Um, just, just like any other relationship or relationship takes work. And um, because the, the pain of living an active addiction was, was greater than this, this, this discomfort of actually seeking that relationship and changing, I, I became willing to, to do that and to take that action. Um, as I, as I began to understand the, the how and why God had worked in my life, even when I wasn't um, acknowledging or speaking to him, uh, that clarity brought some peace and, and some serenity. Um, you know, I, I first heard this, uh, this message of any of this type of recovery, this action based, the 12 step recovery, um, in a, in a facility, um, pride and ego were very present and glaring in my life. And they kept me from, it kept me from reaching out for help for a long time. Um, I, I wasn't going to accept your help. I didn't want your help. Um, so I, I received help in an unlikely way. It was people being of service and, and coming into some of these de- detox facilities where, <clears throat> where I would attend. Um, so as I, as I worked through my sobriety, as I was getting sober, um, I wanted to find a way to, to give back. Um, and I ran into, um, a friend of a friend and they were starting a, a treatment center here in the Charlotte Matthews area called Carolina center for recovery. Um, and I simply asked them if I could show up and volunteer and they were about, 20 something days, maybe 30 days into operations and they needed some help. So they said, sure, come on in. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I started showing up and, um, and I've never left. I've, I've been with them for nearly three years now as, as, uh, they're growing as a company. Um, and that idea of service, um, has just been instrumental in my life. Um, and with that, I took uh, the next step as you as you read in in the bio there in 2019. I felt um, I felt led and, and compelled to to give back on a, a greater level, um, and I didn't have a, a very big understanding of what that was going to look like. Um, as I said, I didn't I didn't have insurance, and I never got to attend um, like a, a true 30, 45 day treatment program or anything like that. But I did spend some time in several living. And um, during that time, I saw recovery in action. I saw people actually not just stopping drinking, not just stopping using drugs, but actually building a new life. Mm. Um, I saw some of the happiness and peace that I tried to get with filling it, filling my life with alcohol and materialistic things. But um, <clears throat> point is, I, I found that through uh, through several living and watching other men recover. Um, so with about $60 and um, a GoFundMe account, I um, created uh, Anchor of Hope Sober Living in April of 2019 um, with a, a small vision of what that would become. Yeah, that's, um, that's amazing, Josh. <laughs> that's amazing. Especially knowing that like recovery started when 
you actually ask for help. And then the next level of your sobriety started when you asked if there was a need. Mm-hmm. Right. With, without that vulnerability, it's a very vulnerable question. Because, again, we're so scared of rejection that we won't ask those questions. We won't say, can you help me? We won't say, can I come be a part of y'all's therapeutic center? And you risked it. Right. And, uh, and it, it led to an incredible change. That's amazing. Well, I, I can't take too much credit there. I, uh, I didn't put a whole lot of thought into it. So I didn't think about that part. That, well, if you thought that about it, you would have messed it up. Right. That, yeah. that fear would have paralyzed me. And, and that's, uh, that's one of the statements I share a lot is, is we're either paralyzed in fear and we sit still and we don't, we don't reap the blessings that God has for us, or we simply walk by faith and, and let his grace do the rest. Um, I, I know that there will be a time that I'll fall short, but I know that his grace is sufficient. And, and that's been, you know, that's been the story. Um, I get a lot of questions about, well, you know, where do you see this? And, you know, fill in the blank, however amount of time. And, and I never know the answer because if I, if I don't want to sell myself, <laughs> you know, right. All right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So short sighted of, cause what he's got, immeasurably more is planned for you. Yeah, so it starts with one sober living house, right? How, That's correct. Yeah, so how did you – tell me a little bit about the name and how you decided with that and, and, and what's the background. Okay. Um, when I was in sober living in 2015, I, I found this anchor here around my neck mm-hmm. at a um, an, an uptown event in Gastonia, actually. Um, and it was something that just stuck out to me and it was special to me. And – um, I've since done some research on the history of the anchor and, um, the anchor was a representation of the cross when the cross could not be worn. And, wow. um, we obviously know a, a lot of, um, there's a lot of anonymity in, um, in addiction and in recovery. A lot of people cannot share as vulnerably and transparent as, as, I feel that I can or mm-hmm. that I take the liberty to anyway. Right. Um, and I, I found that that was a symbol of, of hope. Um, there's, there's scripture that <clears throat> most are familiar with. Hope is an anchor to my soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I had this idea rolling around in my head um, and I didn't share it with anybody because it kind of sounded crazy, you know. Um, and Christmas of 2018, uh, uh, my now wife um, bought me, um, a journal and the journal was from the Billy Graham library and it had an anchor on the front of it and it had hope across. And, um, Mm. that's powerful. Yeah. I get emotional there. Yeah. Um, That's, that's worthy of emotion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, she had no idea. She had no idea. I hadn't told her the name of this, of that I had in my head. I hadn't told her any of these ideas. Um, and that was just a, uh, a sign for me that like, this needs to happen. Um, I ended up meeting with a, a guy who had reached out to me. He just was, he was trying to do, trying to start a home here in the Charlotte area. And I spent a couple hours with him just sharing, sharing my ideas and my knowledge from, from living in homes, um, over the course of 10 years. And it dawned on me, I'm like, I have the knowledge to do this. Um, I don't have the finances, but I have the knowledge and it's, it's honestly just based on experience. So I, I can't mess it up too much. Um, so 
that's where that's where things started. I uh, taking action, um, walking by faith. Um, I found that scripture, walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians five seven. I found that in jail. I'd, I'd never heard that before. As much time as in my early years I'd spent in the church, I didn't know it, and um, yeah. it's become a you know a um, I don't know our our I don't want to say slogan, but it's um, definitely words that I live by. We'll say that. Yeah. Um, I uh, I registered um, a Facebook page and an Instagram account and I launched a GoFundMe on April 1st of 2019 and Anchor of Hope Sober Living was created. Yeah, um, that, that is just tremendous. Again, it's that, you know, it's, it's hard to explain this, but there's something I got taught in early sobriety that I was to show up and get out of the way and it's so paradoxical yeah. and, but I, I had to learn that myself mattered and what God had planned for me mattered. So that self had to show up and I had to get all the things out of the way, all the fear, all the things that would paralyze me, all the things that would tell me that I'm somebody that I'm not. Mm-hmm. All right. And so yeah. I, I just so hear your story being about that you showed up and you got out of the way. And amazing yeah. things have happened. What a ripple effect how many people have been helped. And especially just thinking about seven homes now. And I think you have a home for women now. Is that correct? I do. Yeah. I do. We opened a, a women's home in um, August of last year. And, looking to uh looking to find another one i have it's uh i had no idea i knew there was a need in the charlotte area for you know for quality sober living quality affordable sober living but i had no idea um the the door that this would open um you know i opened that first home in um, june of 2019 so in less than two months we raised uh I don't know, ten, twelve thousand dollars, which was sufficient enough to to get get things going. Um, had a lot, a lot of help there. A friend uh, donated and and filed all the paperwork to to register Anchor as a nonprofit. And mm. I I can't even count how many people just showed up, but the faith based community, the recovery community, and people that I I have never met showed up, and and things happened. Excuse me, as um. As we've gone along, I, I mean, I, I rent all of my homes. I don't have the capital to to purchase any homes, but mm-hmm. um, I've found other people in the recovery community that are willing to either rent a home to me, or I've actually had someone recently, this this house seven, um, a, a friend in the recovery community bought a house specifically just to rent to me. Wow. Um, wow. Yeah. So, so somebody took the time, took their investment their equity their financial life and invested in a home so that you could help more people right yeah that's amazing that's great faith in the lord and in you and what you're doing like that's just that's that's beautiful it is it's uh you know when i when i talk about it in these terms a lot of a lot of the stuff that has happened i don't i don't spend a lot of time talking about it or thinking about it um, I just, I just kind of do it because mm-hmm. if, if you're looking at the, you know, the business plan of it, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, but yeah. uh, I can't t- spend too much time thinking about that. I have to know that this is, this has worked so far. And if, if God's brought me this far, then why would he just leave me here? And yeah. I, you know, I know that that's, that's not going to be true. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's very apparent 
just the need for that connection. I, I have calls almost on a daily basis and um, I have a, a wait list for, for both my wins and my women's homes with, with every bed full pretty much at all times right now. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, it just tells me that I need to keep doing what I'm doing and need to work harder. Yeah. And, and, and to know like the part of this is taking care of yourself, right? Like there's a higher responsibility, right? There, this is, this is the highest calling for you. This is mm-hmm. right. This is the higher calling of you because really, and you know, I speak this from experience too, the more the Lord gave me in sobriety, the more I had to do, the more I had to do more therapy and press into me because if I neglect myself in an effort to help other people, then I go right, I'll end up right back where I started, but worse. Mm-hmm. Um, self-care is something that I, I, I struggle with. Um, I practice self-care through, through being of service to others. And, um, you know, not only has, has God blessed me in, in the recovery field, <clears throat> but um, the friend who picked me up, and in late April of 2017, and I spent time on her couch, and and now she's my wife, and yeah. um, she was a, a friend from my from my past, from and life happened for her, and and we reconnected. Um, we now have a, a two year old daughter. Um, I'm a bonus dad to a wonderful ten year old. We went mm. out to to dinner last night, um, mm. and she's just a. Uh, my wife, she's just a constant reminder of I, I can't lose myself too much in, in everything, even though left to my own devices. I know I know that I would. Um, I know that God placed her in my life for a reason because she gives me that balance. And I don't mean balance and they're equal. I mean that she reminds me that I, I'm also a husband and a father and that those are duties that I cannot take lightly because they're gifts as well. So is the emotion when you're talking about her and, and being being a dad to two and, and being a husband, is the emotion of that, is it because of where you ended up in addiction, you never thought this was possible? Yeah. Uh, you know, I look back and for years, I, like I mentioned, I, I lied to myself for a long time, but I, I would say that I didn't want children. I would joke that I was never going to get married and I joked and said those things because I didn't think that they were possible. Right. And if I, if I lied to myself enough and said that I didn't want them and I didn't think they were possible, then maybe I wouldn't feel so disappointed if they didn't happen. Sure. Um, sure. You know, fast forward into, um, into my mid thirties and I'd realized that I did want those things and I kind of faced a reality and was willing to, to say that um, I wasn't willing or ready to put in the work to receive those gifts. Um, and when my action to, to change and to, um, build a life in sobriety coincided with, with the love of another person, then the things that I wanted in life happened when I got out of the way, much like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, I just uh, think that's so beautiful that you were able to step in and know that you're worthy because God said so of all yeah. of that. Um, I, uh, it's talking about those gifts or those are things that I I didn't do a whole lot for. Like, Mm -hmm. like you said, you just kind of get out of the way. And and I did. And, and all of this stuff that I tried 
to make happen for so long just just happened and i didn't have to be the director and i didn't have to orchestrate and fix and arrange um i just had to do the next right thing i just had to to not pick up a drink i i had to take um take the alcohol out of the equation and and life straightened out um financially emotionally physically mentally um my health um all those things just just happened when when i found that relationship with god when i stopped trying to control Mm -hmm. and I, i just practice some um some honesty and some principles some integrity and courage and faith and you know, from for me, I, I had to find hope, um, and I found that through seeing other people that that felt the way I did, and they didn't feel that way anymore. Yeah, um, yeah that's powerful. And go, yeah, it goes yeah. back to that vision for for anchor that that idea for community and and for people to see that whatever their dreams are, you know, they don't have to be to work in recovery. For me, that's that's what it was. Yeah. Um, I had that passion. But if, if your dream is to own your own construction company or if it's simply to, to, be, a, to be a teacher or whatever, whatever that might be, your dreams are possible through sobriety and through a relationship with God. Um, your story doesn't have to look like anyone else's and you can still have some input on it, but you have to be willing to, to get out of the way um, at some point. And yeah. I'm just, man, I'm just grateful that I did. Yeah. And, and also just knowing that we're worthy of more. A lot of times we won't see what he's doing because we'll just think we're not worthy of that. And so I, I just love the fact with all the pain you've been through that you you grabbed that concept and just really you bathed in it, that you were so worthy. And other people, because of that, now really are anchored in hope. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's amazing. All right, Josh, we're going to start wrapping this up. I'm going to ask you some some possibly lighthearted questions. Who knows? They might not be. We're just going to see what happens. So this is just rapid fire. We're just throwing you in the hot seat, just like you and I do to our clientele. I'm going to throw you in the hot seat real quick. You ready? I am. All right. Fantastic. Okay. What are you the most proud of? I'm most proud of my faith. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm most proud of the God that I serve and the work that he's done in and through me and the ability for his light to shine through my actions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's beautiful. Hey, what surprises you the most about yourself? <laughs> Where I am today. Um, letters behind my name. <laughs> um, <laughs> titles yeah. that I have. And like you said, I didn't feel worthy of that title of husband and father. Mm. Um, seeing a, a nameplate on my door when I show up at work, those things are still surprising. Yeah. Yeah, I'm 25 years in, and it still surprises me, too. <laughs> it's just yeah. surprising, and it? it's beautiful, but still surprising. Where is this? Where is the strangest place you ever slept? Um, I'd say front porch of a random church in Gastonia. This is the Gastonia part that makes it strange. You know that, right? It is. It yeah. is. <laughs> <laughs> what do you have a love-hate relationship with? Mm. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, I would say my perfectionism. Mm. Um, I love, love for things to go perfectly. 
and everything to just be as planned and, and, you know, everybody hit their cues and, and, and everything to go great. But I hate the fact that when they don't, I still, you know, four years in still have a difficulty letting go of the emotions associated with that, with that dissatisfaction. So I love the fact that I'm slightly OCD and, and a perfectionist, but Sometimes I wish I could just let it go. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, last question for you. If you had to give yourself a new name, what would it be? Um, it's funny. Uh, a lot of the uh, therapists and um, associates at work call me Josh Hope. So oh, that's um, good. I, uh, I find that is very comforting. Yeah. And, um, also, just as highest compliment. So yeah, it is. That's All what right. we'll go with. I like it. All right, Josh. Hope if people are going to find you, because people are just like I have, are going to fall in love with you. What's your Instagram handle or Facebook website? Where would people find you? Sure. Um, on Instagram, you can find me at jrbone23. That's j r b o n e two three. Um, you can find me on Facebook at Josh Bone, B-O-N-E. Um, Anchor of Hope, SoberLiving.org is our website. And you can also email us at Anchor of Hope, SoberLiving at gmail.com. That is awesome. Hey, Josh, thank you. So we're doing this intentionally on 420. It's considered National Marijuana Day, Get High Day. And so what we're doing, because Josh represents recovery so well, is... We're doing this, bringing this out to you on 420 to remind you that THC really stands for, for the higher calling, and that is who Josh is, and it's a, mm-hmm. it's, it's a hope calling, right? It's a hope calling, and so um, that's what this is going to be about today for people to hear is that they can have a, a higher calling, they can have a calling of hope, and that no matter what you've been through, no matter what your loved ones have been through, that recovery is available for all of us. So, Josh, thank you for your time. And to our listeners, I know you heard something today that flipped your lid. And we're also praying you heard something to help you reconnect to who you really are. Take care of yourselves. Thank you for listening to Flip Your Lid with Kim Honeycutt. Please subscribe, rate, and share. You can find Kim on Facebook or Instagram at KB Honeycutt. To get an autographed copy of Kim's book, visit butyourmotherlovesyou.com. Remember, no matter what, treat yourself well today.